from Public Radio International, I'm Kojo Namdi and this is America Abroad. Today, Afghanistan after Karzai, an international town hall. The discussion between audiences in Washington and Kabul is brought to you by America Abroad and WAMU 88.5. Please note that this conversation was recorded before the presidential election in Afghanistan. So, welcome. Afghanistan is at a historic turning point. After two terms in office, Hamid Karzai's presidency is at an end. The leader who stepped in just after 9-11 became an ally of the United States and other NATO powers. He leaves office as an antagonist. At the same time, NATO has begun its final drawdown of combat troops from Afghanistan after a decade of deployment there. A small training force could remain, but the bulk of Western troops will be gone by December. So, this is a moment of both challenge and possibility for the people of Afghanistan. Today, we'll hear from Afghans in Kabul about the opportunities and obstacles they face and the role they want the West to play as their country moves forward. Here in Washington, we'll ask our American audience what they think about the U.S. role after a dozen years at war there and how that role should change in the years ahead. Now, allow me to introduce the audience here in Washington, D.C. Hello. And let me introduce our guests for this discussion. Mark Jacobson has spent 20 years in the U.S. military and held a variety of posts at the Defense Department. He served two years at the NATO International Security Assistance Force headquarters in Afghanistan, where he advised both General Stanley McChrystal and General David Petraeus. He's now an intelligence officer in the Navy Reserves and a senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Mark Jacobson, welcome. Thank you, Koja. Also with us is Ryan Sparks. He's a retired Marine infantry officer. He first served in Afghanistan in 2001, immediately after 9-11. He returned to Afghanistan during the U.S. surge in 2010 as a company commander. He has received several military honors, including two Purple Hearts. He now works as a financial services consultant in New York. Ryan, welcome to you. Thank you. Before we meet our audience in Kabul, I'd like to ask Ryan and Mark to help set the scene. Elections for a new president are about to take place, and the U.S. will remove its remaining 34,000 troops in the coming months. Ryan, how do you think this drawdown will affect security in Afghanistan in both the short and long term? And do you think a bilateral security agreement matters? I don't necessarily, in the long term, think a BSA matters. I think historically, our mistake decision-wise in Afghanistan has been to underestimate the time that's required to accomplish anything. And I think a BSA at this point will not get us to a tipping point that we haven't already achieved. Mark, what do you think? Do you see the BSA, the Bilateral Security Agreement, as a critical part of Afghanistan's future development? Well, well certainly what the United States has put forward and, and actually the, the NATO uh, alliance has put forward in terms of their own bilateral agreement with the Afghans, this is seen as a critical piece of the future support by the United States to Afghanistan. It would allow troops to continue serving in Afghanistan to train the Afghan National Security Forces as they continue to develop into a force that can keep things calmer in Afghanistan and allow Afghan governance and rule of law and the type of stabilization that's required for Afghanistan to move forward, as their former Defense Minister Wardak used to say, uh, on the path to self-reliance. However, the violence is wrong, but the political conflict has to move from the battlefield 
frankly, to the Afghan parliament. So in the end, this election we have coming up is 10 times more important than any bilateral security agreement. Okay, let's go to Kabul now. Our host there is Mujib Mashal. He is a freelance journalist in Afghanistan who's also written for American media. Hi, Mujib, and hello to your guests and audience there. Hello, Kojo, and good morning to our friends in Washington. And I would ask our audience to say hello to Washington before we start. Hello. hello. First question I'd like to ask you is about the timing of the withdrawal of the American forces. Do you think it's the right timing as it happens this year without a bilateral security agreement signed? And do you think Afghanistan is in a state that it can hold itself together as the foreign troops withdraw? My name is Raj. Uh, I work for the Tolo News. I don't think right now is a very good time for the U.S. troops to pull out, or at least without the BSA agreement, because now our Afghan troops are not able to hold the security for the Afghan elections, which is very critical for the power transition. And we can see as the examples is that our troops are not able to secure the capital, so leave alone the, uh, the southern parts of the country. Plus, people are discouraged by the local Taliban or the local armed groups not to go and vote. Anybody else would like to share thoughts on that? Yeah, this is Daoud from Kabul University. Well, the withdrawal of the international troops will put Afghanistan into lots of more pressure because we are getting two huge things at the same time. The first time election in Afghanistan, a peaceful transformation of the government from one president to another, and then the withdrawal of the international forces, and then the president resisting the BSA and not signing it. So all these things are pressurizing us, the people, the common people, and the security forces. So they are losing their morals mostly, and they cannot maintain the security anymore. We are under pressure in our, all of the borders with our neighboring countries. The Taliban, they are coming here. All of their Taliban headquarters in other countries are locked and they are focusing on Afghanistan. In this critical and crucial moment, we really need the international forces to be here with us and we need their support. So I guess BSA is really crucial. If we cannot maintain the security and we don't have any elections, we are going to have the same civil wars and problems in our country. The American forces would eventually have to leave at some point. You're just saying the timing and the schedule has to be slower yeah, than yeah, it is Yeah, right I now. totally agree. They have to leave. We don't need to be dependent on the international community for our entire lives. But this is not the right time to leave. They should leave eventually. They will leave and we will take the responsibility. But at this critical and crucial time where we are having elections, and for the first time, peaceful transformation of power and our security forces and all of the Taliban and insurgents, they are focusing on Afghanistan. At this time, if they leave, that will be a failure for them and a huge problem for us. We will not be safe in our cities and in our country. That will create lots of problems. Back to you, Kojo. You're listening to Afghanistan After Karzai, an international town hall where we have an audience gathered in Washington that's communicating with an audience in Afghanistan. We do have questions for your audience here from Washington. Please identify yourself. Uh, yes, hi, I'm Lisa Curtis. And I would like to ask how much the Afghans blame Pakistani support for the Taliban for the ongoing insurgency in Afghanistan when the Karzai government points the finger of blame at Pakistan after attacks such as the uh, attack on the Serena Hotel restaurant. Does the average Afghan believe that, or do they believe simply that the Afghan government is trying to deflect attention from their shortcomings in addressing the insurgency? Mujib Mashal, feel free to share whatever you know about this situation, or, with, uh, or you can ask any member of your audience. 
the question that Lisa asked about blaming Pakistan for Taliban and recent attacks, and how much the average Afghan... In the name of Allah, my name is Nikola Mangal. Uh, and first, so you said that uh, Taliban supported by Pakistan. I think it's wrong because uh, about 10 years ago, if we see that Taliban period, there was no support from Pakistan. I think when you uh, say that uh, Taliban supported from Pakistan, I think it's wrong because Pakistan in this time want to uh, have peace with Afghanistan and also they want to help with Afghanistan president. Uh, I have a very complete different opinion in regards. I would like to say that Pakistan does have a hand in the suicide bombings or the insecurity or even the support of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And an average Afghan is also fed up with the Karzai behavior of at the same time calling the Taliban his brothers and blaming it also on Pakistan. An average Afghan is fed up with that issue too. So I would like to say that yes, average Afghan does think that Taliban are supported by the Pakistan. Just to elaborate a little bit more on that, our president, President Karzai's rhetoric has changed towards Taliban over the years. He calls them brothers now, but he continues to blame Pakistan for supporting the Taliban. So he blames the root of the cause. He doesn't blame the tool that actually carries out the trigger, you know, pulls the trigger. And that's where the, the, you know, the discrepancy sort of confuses the population now a little bit. Yes, Pakistan might be supporting it, but those who end up pulling the trigger are oftentimes our own Afghans and you end up calling them brothers. I'd like to have, on this end, our panelist Mark Jacobson weigh in on this conversation. Great, thank you. I think Majib's explanation is actually uh, spot on. Uh, not only has President Karzai changed his rhetoric, but it's reflective of the challenge where you have an Afghan insurgency. I make no mistake, uh, I, I think the comments that were made were very clear. I mean, these, the, the Taliban did not come from outside. However, they are certainly supported by Pakistani intelligence to various degrees. And one of the challenges for the United States in trying to support the Afghan people is to pressure the Pakistani government to reduce its support for the Taliban, for the Haqqani network. What is, I think, important to raise at this point is how frustrating it is for me personally, and I think for many Americans, especially those who have served whether it's in the military or with the development agencies or the international community in Afghanistan, to see President Karzai's rhetoric focus on blaming the international community for the problems. Granted, we have done some things wrong, incredibly uh, short-sighted in, in some situations, whether it's military or financial, but at the same time, uh, to see the blame for what's happening, that the woes of Afghanistan are, are entirely the fault of the international community, uh, really makes it difficult to continue political support in the United States for continued operations. And I think that's why, again, th this is such a critical time, and there is a, a dire need to change leadership in Afghanistan. And I sense the frustration amongst our audience and Kabul as well. And so, you know, looking forward to seeing a new leader in Afghanistan as soon as possible. Mujib, how widespread is that sentiment that the international community is to blame for all of the wars in Afghanistan, as far as you know? I would go to one point that Mark made, that there's uh, definitely a need for fresh leadership in Afghanistan. That's not because President Karzai has not done a great job in difficult circumstances. It's just that 12 years for anyone is too much. And what that has done is create a relationship between Afghanistan and the United States, a relationship that is sort of based on perceived hypocrisies. You've had one man be in power for 12 years, 
in Afghanistan. On the other side, you've had changes of administration, changes of political parties from Republicans to Democrats. And this one man thinks that that change of policy is actually American hypocrisy. So there's definitely a Karzai nostalgia right now because especially my generation, this younger people, they feel like we've only known one man in relative peaceful times as a leader who's been elected by the people, who's, who's been a presentable, legitimate leader, who's felt the people's needs. But at the same time, there is definitely that perception that any person after 12 years would be tired, would be out of ideas, and we would need a new face in this country. And I think that new face will automatically, naturally reset the relationship between Afghanistan and the United States, but also open up the space for new ideas to be tested. We have another question from a member of the audience here in Washington. Sir, please identify yourself and go ahead. Quran Shazad. Um, do you think the foundation which was built to stabilize, bring democratic uh, country and everything, do you think the foundation was wrong? If we have given another chance, what will be the strategy? I, I think Ryan Sparks? It, yeah, I think it's a classic kind of modern American mistake in military policy. Our mission is now is the same that it was in 2001 when I went in there, and that's to destroy al-Qaeda's ability to attack the United States from Afghanistan and, you know, thereby dismantle the Taliban because they were harboring al-Qaeda. As far as I know, in 2013, that's pretty much still the stated mission in Afghanistan. In 2001, we had accomplished the tactical front side of that pretty overwhelmingly quickly. And I think that once we achieve that tactical victory, we're not sure where to go from there because we've disrupted the local government to such an extent that we're then obligated to solve some sort of a problem. And now we're at a point where we have an obligation to the gentleman sitting in that room to turn over to them some sort of stability. And the constant idea of where do we draw the line on scope creep? Um, are we now responsible for women's rights in the tribal areas as an American government because we've started down that road? Are we now responsible for transitioning to legitimate farming and getting rid of some of the opium growing in Afghanistan? And I don't know. That's kind of the classic American mistake that's underlined our, our current military policies. So to answer your question, I don't know if it was a mistake or not. And I, I think that that's up to every American to decide where our commitments in the country really lie because we're far beyond our own national security at this point. Now we're into obligations on a human rights level to the Afghan. I, if I could just... Uh, Here's Mark Jacobson. If I could just comment briefly, I, I think our mistake was not understanding what it would take in 2001 to create an Afghanistan where al-Qaeda could not find sanctuary. The last administration correctly saw a threat emanating from Afghanistan, chose to intervene, the right call in my view, but thought simply by destroying al-Qaeda's network and ability to operate, that would solve the problem. And therefore ignored this issue of a broader feeling of disenfranchisement amongst the Pashtuns in the South, so it missed the development of this new insurgency. And I think the number one lesson we have to take away is bring all parties into the discussion. The inability or the lack of a desire to bring the Taliban into the fold in the beginning to have the difficult discussions in 2002 and 3, much in the same way I think the elimination of the Ba'athist government and the military forces in Iraq helped to foster an unstable situation. I, I, I believe that that will be seen as the major failure. 
This is Afghanistan after Karzai, an international town hall. This discussion between audiences in Washington and Kabul is brought to you by America Broad Media and WAMU 88.5. When we come back, how the presidential election and a successor to President Karzai will affect Afghanistan's future. I'm Kojo Namdi. I'm Kojo Namdi, and you're listening to Afghanistan After Karzai, an international town hall from America Abroad and WAMU 88.5 in Washington. Here in Washington, we have a studio audience and two panelists. Mark Jacobson has spent 20 years in the U.S. military, held a variety of posts at the Defense Department, and Ryan Sparks is a retired Marine infantry officer who first served in Afghanistan in 2001, immediately after 9-11. I'm joined by Mujib Mashal, host for Tolo News and a studio audience in Kabul. Hi again, Mujib, and please introduce your panelists. Hello, Kojo. So we have two panelists here with us, Lutfolona Jafizada, who is the head of Tolo News, who's basically the editor of one of the largest private news channels in Afghanistan. And we have Sam Schneider, who is an American freelance journalist writing for U.S. outlets. And we have an audience of young Afghans, university students, but also journalists who will be sharing their thoughts and also answering questions. Well, we do have questions for them, and we will start with... Ma'am, please identify yourself. Yes, hi, everyone. My name is Caroline Wadhams, and um, I'm from the Center for American Progress. I do want to push back a little bit on the U.S. panelists' opinions of the BSA. I actually think the BSA is incredibly important, not only because it lays out the parameters of what a small U.S. military presence might look like in Afghanistan after 2014, but the psychological implications. There is a huge fiscal gap, as everyone is well aware, in Afghanistan in terms of its ability to pay for its own security forces and its state. And it will require ongoing money from the United States and from the international community, billions of dollars. And if there is no BSA, I think that undermines the political will of our Congress to continue supporting Afghanistan at the levels that it needs to happen. How will the Congress make the case to the American public that we should be funding $4 billion per year for the next decade if we can't see a commitment by the Afghan leadership that a partnership is important? Just a question to you all. I would be very curious. We haven't talked a lot about the election yet. Um, We're about to. How you see the election playing out, what your hope is for the future of Afghanistan. Thank you. Uh, Mujib, allow me to have Mark Jacobson respond to the issue of the bilateral security agreement before I come back to you in Kabul. I don't disagree with Caroline in terms of the political impact, particularly in the United States. What I am less certain about is the ability of new Afghan leadership to take the BSA as it's currently written and sign it, despite pledges, I believe, by all of the major candidates that they would do so, I think it's going to be very hard for them to go in and sign without renegotiating uh, the BSA. I do understand that uh, both uh, from the White House and from NATO, there's been a clear signal, no BSA, no troops, and no money. Uh, We all understand that without a certain level of security provided by non-Afghan forces, it will be hard for the development community and the international community to continue. Mujib, over to you and your panelists and audience. I'll ask Lutfullah the question because the issue of BSA got a lot of coverage in the Afghan media. I think the overall uh, perception is that no BSA is not an option for the Afghans. We have demonstrated that through polls, through other studies, through interviews, of Afghans across the country. So uh, some sort of security relationship with the United States is a must for uh, the sustainability of our forces, for the sustainability of the country. 
there are people, of course, who don't favor it. There are people who want the Americans to leave based on their own interest, uh, which is very limited to a small proportions of the Afghans. Most of the candidates that, you know, we've had them on our debates in the past two months or so, they have said that they're going to sign the BSA as soon as they're in the office. Two of the main candidates uh, have promised that they're going to sign the BSA in the first week and month. In terms of the average citizen and the impact, the psychological impact, whether it is signed or not, do they feel the impact in their daily life? I think they do, yes. It, it has created an environment of uncertainty which has let a lot of NGOs leave the country. You know, the capital flight of Afghan businessmen has been a huge issue. A lot of people have lost jobs, and that is a very direct impact, you know, on the Afghan lives. But the hope is still there. I think, you know, both countries can't live without having some sort of security arrangement, which is in the core interests of both countries and their security. Just to add one little thing about the candidates supporting the BSA, Actually, most candidates on a lot of issues have been very hesitant to take a stance that goes against what Karzai believes. Because they think, if we're not going to have Karzai supporting us, we don't want him to prevent us from getting votes as well. But the BSA is one issue where most candidates and Karzai have disagreed. And they have been very vocal in their disagreements uh, with Karzai. Kojo, back to you. Of course, we've been using the term BSA a lot. That is for the bilateral security agreement that is not yet signed in Afghanistan. Now, we have a comment and question here. Please identify yourself. Hi, my name is Ann Vaughn, and I work for Mercy Corps. We're an international humanitarian and development organization, and I wanted to comment on our more panelists in Kabul's comment about non-governmental organizations. And uh, Mercy Corps has been in Afghanistan since 1986 and plan on staying past this election and for many years to come. One of the things that we're most proud of and excited about is working with youth in Afghanistan, including doing types of training that help move youth from the informal economy into the formal economy. And we're interested in hearing a lot of the from the young people in the panel about what motivates you to stay inside Afghanistan and continue to work helping to build a better Afghanistan. We just have one of our panelists who joined us, Ms. Fawzia Kufi, who is a former deputy speaker of the parliament, an Afghan parliamentarian. She's the head of Women's Rights and Human Rights Commission at the Parliament. You've joined us at the perfect time as well. We were just discussing what keeps Afghans hopeful about the country. Well, traditionally, Afghans have been very hopeful and optimistic nation. I remember days when in the Kabul streets, in each five minutes, you couldn't even see a car during Taliban because the city was almost a dead city. But even by then, people were hopeful for their future. They were hoping for a change. Right now, I think Afghan society has transformed a lot. And the youth generation is part of this transformation. They see themselves part of this change, despite the fact that the country right now is going under tremendous challenges, including security. Uh, but I think Afghan people have accepted that as part of their life. And, and for many of us, life is quite normal. And I think that's an important uh, question that I would like to have uh, another voice. Thank you. I think uh, basically the youth uh, generation in Afghanistan uh, does not see any better option instead of living in this country and working for this country. Because we have seen lots of youth traveling out of Afghanistan, seeking refuge in other countries to uh, have a better life or a better education. But unfortunately, they didn't receive all of the things they are seeking. Uh, especially for me as an Afghan, I would prefer staying in this country. And I think it's not logical to leave uh, a country which really needs you, which there is a hope still 
Israel and Afghanistan. The only thing is not BSA in Afghanistan. We see uh, why is this BSA causing a lot of problem to our society is because the United States of America is saying that it's the last chance or this, if there's no BSA and there's no money. I do have to bring in Ryan Sparks right here because you made the point at the very beginning of this discussion that you did not feel that the BSA was critical. You know, Koju, I, I still, I mean, I understand Caroline's point, and I, I agree with her premises about the, the psychological impact, um, but I'd like to look at this from a different perspective. One of my jobs as a company commander in Afghanistan was to recruit people to join the Afghan army and the local police forces. And what I found during that time is that that recruitment was one of my most difficult tasks. I never filled the quotas that were required. We always had openings in the different classes. And what it struck me with was that until we're turning people away from those recruitment drives, until the local Afghans decide themselves that this is what they want, that a BSA just doesn't matter. And no matter what we do, it doesn't matter until the people themselves decide they want these human rights or they want a legitimate economy or any of the other things that, that we are talking about here, transitioning Afghanistan and helping them out until the local Afghan tribe. And that was what I continually appealed to the elders, that you don't need me to stop the Taliban from coming in and intimidating your village. I'm here to help you, but until you and your peers, the other tribal elders in this village, stand up and turn the people in the, their murder and intimidations campaign away at night and all of these other things, it doesn't matter how many Americans are here because we're just fueling the Taliban, really, by our presence. And so until we cross that threshold, a BSA doesn't matter. And so it, my experience is a little bit stale, but I don't think that we have crossed that threshold in Afghanistan where the Afghan people, together as a country, are willing to stand up unified and say, no, the Taliban's not coming back. Now I'm going to toss it back to you, Mujib. Respond at will. There are two questions that came out, and I'd I'll, I'll like to direct the first one to you and second to Atfullah. Um, this idea that the BSA is not so important, but the Afghans' willingness to, you know, queue up in front of recruitment centers is important. To flip that over its head, is that possible to ask the Afghans to enlist in the army and the ANP? without having the assurance of a strong partner. We have to keep in mind that Afghanistan have had a very strong army before the civil war and before the Taliban government. But unfortunately, the civil war, and in particular the beginning of 2001, the number of people in the army that was agreed in Bonn conference in 2001 was reduced to 70,000 people. So we have had a very horrifying experiences uh, during the past 30 years of our history with our neighbors. Uh, you know, we have been attacked by neighboring countries in different ways. So therefore, the concern people of Afghanistan have that if the BSA is not signed, and at the end, international community decides to leave Afghanistan and the zero option is implemented in Afghanistan, the consequences would be that Afghanistan once again may either fall in the hands of extremism, which in this case might be Taliban and the remaining of Al-Qaeda, or it goes back to the civil war. So therefore, I think even if within the content of the BSA, no significant support come to Afghan forces, but the fact that Afghans generally know that there is a stronger partner that we could uh, liaise with. That gives us somehow self-esteem and it gives our forces self-esteem that we will not go back to the zero option. And if I could ask you, Utfullah, I think this idea that we could educate the Taliban is a bit far-fetched. Nobody has that much influence. But have you seen any flexibility in them that they could choose another way than my way or no way? 
Well, I think the Taliban are educated enough to fight, you know, the Afghan government and the Americans. But in the past three years or so, we've seen a, a dramatic shift in the Taliban's overall strategy when it comes to reconciliation, for instance. You know, Taliban agrees to uh, negotiate with the Afghan government and, more interestingly, with the Americans directly. So that suggests that the Taliban and the Americans agreed to talk to each other, and they've done that, you know, in the past years. So it's an issue of interest for the Taliban, you know, what you really offer to them. Uh, you offer part of the government, part of the country, part of the geography, what kind of power you give to them, and something that they can really justify in the insurgency for the past 13 years or so. So uh, I think the Taliban are interested to come and be part of the process. In terms of Taliban, there's an interesting point one of our uh, participants raised earlier. There is no one single Taliban. It's a fractured movement. And if you could elaborate a little bit about this peace process, there's actually been multiple peace processes. When one has happened, another group of Taliban has denounced that. How much of a challenge is that to try to negotiate with a fractured movement? The political process, the reconciliation with the Taliban leadership is apparently the hardest one. Uh, because you need not to negotiate with the Taliban only, but the responsive states as well. The Afghan government claimed that, you know, that they have to talk to Pakistan now first and then to Pakistan to the Taliban, which makes the reconciliation process m much harder. But the reintegration, for instance, you know, if you're an unemployed Afghan somewhere in the south or, or north, wherever, and in need to win a bread for your family, and joining the insurgency is the only option, offering something alternative to them with the reintegration process is something which can help. And the reconciliation level with the political transition we experience now and the withdrawal, once you know we have less American footprint on the ground, the Taliban would have less justification for the fight. So there would be more willingness to come to the negotiation table. But critical to the peace talks, in my view, is the strength of the Afghan government. If we have a, a stronger and inclusive government then the states sponsoring the Taliban and supporting the Taliban would take it more seriously and the Taliban would take the Afghan government more seriously and that's when this will bear some fruit. I'm glad we're getting to the election because we do have to take a short break very shortly. We will be talking more about the election after that break. I'd like to get in one more comment, however, about the BSA from one of our guests here. Would you please identify yourself? Yes, uh, Mark Kusha. I'm here representing the Alliance in support of the Afghan people. Just a couple comments. I, I agree with you, Ryan, in terms of maybe our troop presence isn't as important, but the BSA to me is very important psychologically and morale, as well as financially. And two big changes I saw in my different times during Afghanistan were a vast growth of the media and the civil society that's grown up, even in rural Helmand, where now it is a more national dialogue that you're hearing not a separatist kind of dialogue. I've never heard anyone actually talking about, I want a southern Afghanistan for us and none of the rest of Afghanistan. The other big development that's changed dramatically was the development of the ANSF. But Could I mean, you please describe what the ANSF is? Um, Afghan National Security Forces. So, but there's many flavors, from police to local police to the Afghan National Army. What you saw in where I was in Marja was the formation of the Afghan local police. So local villagers actually did stand up and defend their villages and push out the Taliban. And I think at the end of the day, the ANSF needs to be better than the Taliban, which by all evidence to this last year, they are. But they continue to need our support, just like our NATO allies cannot do everything on their own. They use U.S. support as well. 
So I would like to get the opinion of the people in Kabul, what their opinion of their own national army and national police are and how they've seen any changes or if they agree or disagree with my assessment. Can we get a response to that, Mujib, and then we're going to take a short break. I'd like to get one of the participants. As a citizen, how much do you believe in their abilities? Of course, as an Afghan, we must believe in Afghan security forces. There is no other option if the zero option is applied. So what we will have to do, we will have to support or, or we will have to be disappointed from our national army. So the better option for Afghan citizens is to support their national security forces and how they can have their support to more recruitment and to go further for the national security forces and further believe in them that yes, we have a nation behind us that they are going to support us uh, psychologically and morally and they are going to believe in us. So I don't believe that if zero option is applied, Afghan security forces will be eliminated as it was in the, during the civil wars. I have to take that short break now. You're listening to Afghanistan After Karzai, an international town hall. This discussion between audiences in Washington and Kabul is brought to you by America Abroad and WAMU 88.5. I'm Kojo Namdi. Welcome back. I'm Kojo Namdi, and you're listening to Afghanistan After Karzai, an international town hall from America Abroad and WAMU 88.5. I'm joined by Mujib Mashal, host for Tolo News and a studio audience and guests, Fazia Kufi, an Afghan member of parliament, and Latfula Najafizada, head of Tolo News, and Sam Schneider, an American journalist in Kabul. Majib, this time we're going to have you start out. How important is it to Afghans that this election be seen and be, in fact, free and fair? Ms. Kufi, we'll start with you in terms of the political transition and the elections. How important is it uh, in Afghanistan's new beginning, this current transition we're going through? I should mention that she is a former presidential candidate herself. <laughs> yes, I was supposed to run for the election, but unfortunately, you know, most of the women would like to call themselves younger. <laughs> but I very much wish that I was 40 years old in 2013. I was not eligible age-wise, so therefore I couldn't run, uh, hopefully next time. I think it's very interesting because this is the first time Afghans don't know who is going to enter the palace, and this is the first time in our history, because we have had two elections before, 2004 and 2009. To some extent, we know that President Karzai might get elected. So therefore, that enthusiasm and interest around election was not there. Therefore, many people see this as an opportunity. Sam, if, if I could come to you, what have you observed of, of the process, the campaigning process? There have been massive rallies around the country, despite the security challenges. Do you see interest in, in the average Afghan in terms of going out and voting? Yes, uh, I definitely see interest. You know, it's hard to necessarily tell and gauge that interest uh, across the country. I think in Kabul, you have uh, a bit of a sample bias because everyone here is so focused on politics. But the news I've been hearing from uh, other provinces is that people are very interested. I mean, the IEC registered over 3 million new voters this year. That's quite a feat. And I know there have been a lot of speculations about people selling voter cards and things like that. But I, you know, I think that the Western media in particular has made a bigger issue out of that than it actually is uh, in terms of the prevalence. I think that the election fever is very evident. A lot of this is new ground for Afghanistan uh, and the importance of that cannot be understated. 
And I, I think one, one other issue that when we talk about insecurity, we should also stress that there are parts of the country where election could not have happened last time, five years ago. This time, there will be polling stations, right. particularly Helmand. Helmand's been discussed a lot. There are parts of Helmand, there were no polling stations last time around. Yes, it's not perfect security, yet the threats are still high, but there will be polling that will happen in parts of it. Um, I'll go to the audience, and I think they have some questions. How much does the audience back there blame the USA or the international community as a whole for an almost failure in Afghanistan? After the decade, we are still having a war, we still having problem with the election. How much is the international community to blame for that? We'll take one more question before we go to the, the panel in the audience in DC. Why is the United States of America basically too much emphasizing on uh, having their uh, forces inside Afghanistan and uh, make it, uh, make it, making it as a must in order to give more uh, funds and support to the Afghan government in long term? Kojo, back to you with two questions. Thank you very much. I will put that question both to our panelists and members of our audience. The first question is how much do we blame the U.S. and the international community, generally meaning the West, for failure in Afghanistan. If there's anyone who would like to respond to that question, raise your hand or step forward to the microphone and please identify yourself. Hi, my name is Mark Thornburg and I work for the United States Department of State in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, which covers Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and I think, quite frankly, it's not fair to say that the West has failed in Afghanistan. I think that if you look at the last decade, we've seen unbelievable progress in Afghanistan on, frankly, every front that we participated in. The Afghan National Security Forces have stood up. They are in the lead for security in all 34 provinces. That's a huge success. The Afghan Mortality Survey that was published in 2012 has documented extraordinary progress in every medical front in Afghanistan. Life expectancy has nearly doubled for Afghan males. It's gone up by over 20 years for the general population. The infant mortality rates have declined. Education is through the roof. We went from something like 800,000 students in school to over 8 million, of which 40% are girls. There's almost no area in which there hasn't been extraordinary progress. And I think that to say that we, the West has failed is an unfair narrative and one that just isn't borne out by facts. The second question that we got from the audience in Afghanistan is, why so much emphasis on maintaining a U.S. presence in Afghanistan? Why do we feel that that is so important? Care to address that, Lisa Curtis? Lisa Curtis is with the Heritage Foundation. Yes, I think that a lot of us here want to see U.S. forces stay in Afghanistan because we want to see Afghanistan prosper and thrive and remain stable, and we feel that's essential for the continuing military partnership between our two countries, albeit in a different form, not fighting on the front lines, yet supporting, training, and funding as part of this as well. But most Americans would like to see all U.S. forces come out of Afghanistan uh, immediately. So I think it's a misperception. It's not as if the U.S. is insisting on keeping its forces there for some ulterior motive. It is simply that the belief among people who are looking closely at the region and care about the region see that even though the Afghan security forces are stepping up to the plate, doing a better job, are capable of addressing the Taliban threat, they still do need our support. There's a great deal of interest here in issues of a more personal nature, how people are dealing with their personal safety. There's also a great deal of interest, and I'd like to hear from Fazia Kafian, what's at stake for women in the presidential election here, especially for the education of women in Afghanistan? Well, we are very much hopeful that in the remaining days of the campaign, the candidate will basically focus 
on their programs for women because this is something that I think has been lacking in the candidates' uh, messages. They haven't been able to focus too much on, on women issues, in particularly education and health, something that, in particular education, that women were deprived and young girls were deprived, and I myself was uh, deprived. If there was no Taliban, I would have been a medical doctor now. Uh, yes, I'm in politics, but to be a medical doctor was a, a wish which never came true. So there are hundreds of kind of uh, dreams that died in the first place for many Afghan young girls during Taliban. So therefore, I think the, the primary focus should be on education of girls and improving their health. Uh, there is a lot of interest, uh, let me tell you, on Afghan women for voting. As their representative, I used to receive a lot of telephone calls in 2009, for instance, asking me who should we support, who should we vote, mm, uh, and mainly that telephone calls were from the main. But luckily, this time, also I received telephone calls from the woman who told me who should we support, what is your position, and that demonstrate the level of involvement and engagement by the uh, women of Afghanistan. And I think women have kind of proven themselves that they are part of this social transformation of Afghanistan. And Sam had to... Yeah, quickly, in terms of uh, women's role in the upcoming elections, I think uh, it's going to be very different from the past. In past elections, a problem has been the lack of female security officers, lack of female police, which prevents a lot of female voters who are registered and have voting cards from going to the polls because they're not going to be, you know, frisked by a male security guard, understandably. So the fact that uh, the Ministry of Interior has hired thousands of new female police officers in order to handle this high capacity of female voters, I think is a great step. I think that the sentiment is less anxiety about what the elections might bring for women's rights in Afghanistan. The anxiety is actually much more focused on what a reconciliation deal with the Taliban might mean for women's rights in Afghanistan. If they are to be reintegrated into the political system, what does that mean for the progress that's been made in, in the realms of women's rights and women's education uh, over the past decade? And one other thing to add, this phenomenon of urbanization. The perception might be that in tribal in Afghanistan and in villages, female participation might not be as high, but it's an increasingly urbanizing country. The urban centers across, whether it's in the south, whether it's in the north, is increasing. So that would also be a stronger factor in women participation voting than it was five years ago. I'd like to get a comment here from Mark Jacobson and then from Ann Vaughn. Between the 2009 presidential election and the 2010 parliamentary election, one of the major changes, I believe, was the ability to uh, root out the fraud. And while there was some, I think that there was a dramatic change between 2009 and 2010. Between 2010 and 2014, I think the voter participation levels, especially in terms of age and female participation, will drive what we see as the results from the election. While it's more important how Afghans view their own elections than how the international community does, I, I think from what I'm hearing, there's a sense that these will be legitimate elections. There will be irregularities. I am certain that fraud will be rooted out, but the ability of people to vote will be greater than that in 2010. Finally, I think it's so important for Afghans to look ahead to the parliamentary elections, where we are going to see, I, hopefully again, not just greater female participation, women's participation in terms of candidates, but a greater number of women candidates and younger candidates elected to the parliament. Now, you can't fix just yet 
the Afghan constitution, which gives so much more power to the presidency than to parliament, uh, creating almost a unitary structure. But I think that's in the future as well. And phone. Great. Hi. Recognizing uh, the political challenges of today um, and what we've been talking about with the election, I uh, was also hoping to move and talk a little bit about the economy in the future and what our guests in Kabul are thinking about how the economy will look in 2014. Uh, to put this into context for the American audience, um, about 40% of Afghans live below the poverty line, so that's about 14 bucks a month or so um, for a family to live on in Afghanistan. And from Mercy Corps' work in, in economic development and working with our Afghan partners, they repeatedly raise the importance of economic stability for their livelihoods. Um, that's first and foremost one of the most important things is to feed your family um, and be able to provide for yourself. There's been a lot of good conversation about the important gains that have been made over the last five years um, or, or longer, but obviously more needs to be done to lift more Afghans out of poverty. So interested to hear from um, audience in Kabul, what steps do you think need to happen over the next couple months and years to be able to lift more Afghans out of poverty? Thanks. The economy, Mujib. Lutfullah, uh, to come to the question of the economy, the economic transition has been overshadowed. People talk about the political transition, the security transition. Where are we going to be as we go through this transition economically? I think that we're going to shift to a new life, which is going to be relatively different you know, to what we've experienced in the past 10 years. There is no indication that the Afghan economy can continue to the current pace. So uh, we have to be prepared for this adjustment. We have to be prepared for a real Afghan standard living. And this will be one of the major issues on the desk of the new government to manage these expectations. Obviously, the income, the inflated income will drop with the decrease in aid, but also in military presence tied to military spending. And it will be a massive challenge for the new government to manage that drop in the expectations. Kojo? Running out of time very quickly, I'd like to ask you first, Ryan Sparks, for final thoughts on the future of Afghanistan and its relationship with the United States. I'm hopeful for Afghanistan. Some of the happiest and most genuine people I've ever met were Afghans and I wish the best for them. We spent a lot of time today talking about a bilateral security agreement, and Mr. Thornburg over there from the State Department brought up some amazing statistics of things that we've accomplished over the past 10 years. And I think that what it will come down to is, as this transition happens, with a BSA or not, that the Afghan people themselves can continue that momentum. And while I personally don't think that a BSA at this point would be the tipping point that continues that momentum, I think that as displayed by some of the young people in the panel in Afghanistan today, that there are some Afghan leaders that have taken over the cause. And that, so I'm hopeful for the future that they can continue the momentum. Mark Jacobson. Well, I would say uh, don't underestimate the importance of the will of the Afghan people when compared with uh, the will of the international community. In the end, uh, this struggle is only going to be uh, brought to a conclusion by the Afghan people. I, I would also say uh, don't underestimate the political uh, pressure put on the U.S. Congress by the American people to bring all American troops home if given the opportunity. And therefore, my final point is uh, really uh, don't overestimate the importance of the BSA in terms of the importance of other uh, issues like the elections for the provincial councils, elections for the presidency, elections for parliament, but the challenge will be if the BSA negotiations ultimately fail, while the elections are more important in my view, we're going to have to start planning for an alternative uh, because as pointed out by some of our audience, without that BSA, it's not the security that matters, it's the money that will help the Afghan government to move on past 2014. 
that's the critical issue. Mujib Mashal, final comments from your guests, and could you please introduce each one of them before he or she comments? First, we'll have a final word from Ms. Fauzi Kufi. She's an Afghan parliamentarian, former deputy speaker of the House, and uh, head of the Women's Rights and Human Rights Commission. Well, I met uh, President Bush in 2006, and then I had a message for him. And I would like to repeat that message to my American friends. My message to him was that Americans in West as a whole supported Afghan people to deliver a baby called democracy. Now that baby is almost 13 years old. That baby needs attention and it needs to be given the required support and pamper to grow up. It's a very critical age. If you continue to support us, we will be able to grow this baby. If not, I think this baby will die. And the negative consequences of that death will not be only in Afghanistan, but to the world. He's the head of Tilo News. I think the Afghan people recognize and appreciate the amount of sacrifices, both in blood and treasure, uh, from the international community, the US in particular. And that is widely recognized you know, across the country. But I think it's important for the two countries to move forward. By the end of the decade of transformation, in 10 years, we hope Afghanistan would be a reliable and a strong partner for the U.S. in the region, which is going to help the prosperity of both nations. Finally, we have a word from Sam Schneider, who is a freelance journalist writing from Afghanistan. You know, in a way, the ball is more in the U.S. and the international communities court they are the ones that need to make up their mind whether or not they're going to continue to be partners in the trajectory of progress that they set Afghanistan on 13 years ago. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. You've been listening to Afghanistan after Karzai, an international town hall from America Broad Media, WAMU 88.5 in Washington, and Tola News in Kabul, Afghanistan. Thanks very much to our Afghan host, Mujib Mashal, and his guest, Mujib. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to our panel here in Washington, retired Marine Captain Ryan Sparks and Mark Jacobson, senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And a special thanks to our audiences, both in Kabul and in Washington. Please give yourselves a round of applause at both ends. This hour was produced by Rob Sachs, Kathy Goldgeier, Brendan Sweeney, and Flon Williams. The executive producer for America Abroad is Martha Little. Our technical director is Jonathan Cherry. In Kabul, our thanks goes out to my co-host, Mujib Mashal, and the crew at Tolo News. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Find us through the New America Abroad app or the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Kojo Nambi, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Thank you all very much. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. PRI, Public Radio International.